It's Wednesday, July 27th. I'm Pam Jones. State health officials say Maryland's COVID positivity rate remains dismal. Baltimore's health commissioner defends the city's handling of the monkeypox vaccine. The city council held a hearing today on what to do about the number of squeegee workers at busy intersections. Two races still undecided in Baltimore County's Democratic primary. We'll have those headlines and more, plus climate change and environmental equity in black and brown communities. It's the Daily Dose from WIPR, our latest reporting on Maryland's COVID-19 response and the local news of the day, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Officials from Maryland's health department have confirmed 1,663 new cases of COVID-19. The state's positivity rate remains dismal at above 10 percent, and there's been an uptick in hospitalizations at 612. The state also reports in the last 24 hours 20 more COVID-related deaths. Baltimore City Health Commissioner Dr. Leticia Zaraza said during a press conference Tuesday that she wanted to dispel the rumor that the city has a stockpile of monkeypox vaccines that aren't being used. WIPR's Bethany Raja reports. Zaraza said Baltimore City has received 200 doses of the vaccine and health care officials across the state are working on getting more from the federal government stockpile. We're actively working to distribute those 200 doses in an equitable way to the individuals at highest risk of contracting and spreading monkeypox here in Baltimore. She said the health department has distributed doses to Chase Brexton Health Services, city health department clinics, and some are to be used for contact tracing. Our strategy is focused on reaching the truly marginalized, like the resident that's dependent on transactional sex to make rent, or the trans youth that doesn't have a permanent place to live, or the individuals on methamphetamines that are having anonymous sex while using. Statewide, there are 87 confirmed cases of monkeypox, with 21 confirmed in Baltimore City. Bethany Raja, WYPR News. The Baltimore City Council held a hearing this afternoon on how to address the roughly 160 squeegee workers at busy intersections across the city. The hearing was prompted after a 15-year-old squeegee boy was recently charged as an adult with first-degree murder of a 48-year-old motorist who confronted him with a baseball bat downtown. City outreach workers said some of the young people are struggling with mental health, lack of stable housing, and school attendance. The council is expected to get a formal report on efforts to reduce the number of young people on street corners washing vehicle windows in traffic. Baltimore Mayor Brandon Scott signed a bill this afternoon allowing a charter amendment to be put on the ballot in November. If voted for favorably, it will give the city local control over the police department. The counting of ballots continues today as two races remain undecided in the Democratic primary in Baltimore County and Baltimore City. In the county, incumbent state's attorney Scott Schellenberger has an 1,800-vote lead over challenger Robbie Leonard. Meanwhile, in the city sheriff's race, challenger Sam Cogan is leading incumbent John Anderson by nearly 2,500 votes. Organizers of a petition drive to allow Baltimore County residents to vote on whether to expand the county council from 7 to 11 members say they will fall short of the signatures they need to put it on the ballot in November. But WYPR's John Lee says the issue might not be dead because the county executive supports expanding the council. 
The county council could put the issue on the ballot in 2024 if at least five council members agree to it. Baltimore County Executive Johnny Oshevsky says he'll take a very serious look at working with the council to propose expanding the body by perhaps two seats. To ensure that we do have opportunities for representation closer to the community, but also rep more opportunities for uh, women and candidates of color to run and, and win and serve on the county council. There is one black council member, although the county is around 30 percent African-American. Supporters of expanding the council also point out it has had seven seats since 1956. Meanwhile, the county's population has more than tripled. John Lee, WIPR News. With barely a month to go before schools reopen, Anne Arundel County Executive Stuart Pittman is searching for ways to ease the county's continuing school bus driver shortage. WIPR's Joel McCord with that story. Last year, Pittman budgeted $4.4 million for signing and retention bonuses and pay raises to attract and hold bus drivers and aides. But today he said the county school board didn't add as much money as he had expected. We were trying to make sure that every bus driver was getting what amounted to a pay increase of $5 an hour over what they were getting before to incentivize the work and make it um, make it possible to live on the wage of a, of a school bus driver. Now he said he's going to use some of the county's American Recovery Plan Act for the raises. It's a good incentive, but we need to get the word out. And we need to um, let people know that this really is a way to serve the kids and the families of Anne Arundel County. He said the county's Workforce Development Corporation offers a free training program for drivers. I'm Joel McCord, WYPR News. When it comes to student debt, Maryland ranks number two in the nation with the highest average. An organization that helps college-bound students and those who work in the field navigate the complexities of financial aid held their annual symposium on Tuesday. WIPR's education reporter Jacana Collier reports. The Maryland Center for Collegiate Financial Wellness collaborates with financial aid administrators to teach financial literacy skills to students. The average student loan debt in Maryland is over $42,000, with only 14% of borrowers owing less than $5,000. Founder Dr. Tisa Silver-Kennedy said the goal is for students to understand their financial aid options. I think that we can't confuse availability with accessibility, because just because the information is there, doesn't mean that the student knows where to go to find the information that's relevant to them or how to translate it. The symposium also highlighted challenges in the profession, such as recruitment and retention. I'm Jakina Collier, WIPR News. There will be a town hall meeting to discuss public safety after Tuesday's drive-by shooting in Middle River. The meeting will start at 7 o'clock Thursday night at Victory Villa Baptist Church on Shondell Road. Officials say Tuesday's incident was a targeted shooting and anyone with information should call police. Residents living near BWI Airport will receive $4 million in federal funding to mitigate aviation noise caused by a change in flight paths. Residents will be able to install insulation and other measures to reduce the sound of aircrafts over their homes. The change in flight patterns came in 2015 when the FAA implemented its next-gen system to modernize how it manages U.S. airspace.
Baltimore, like many cities across the nation, experienced code red alerts last week and temperatures that near triple digits. Environmentalists say heat waves, wildfires and air quality alerts are increasing across the world because of climate change. Urban areas and black and brown communities with fewer resources have limited means to mitigate the effects. Professor Shakobi Wilson, co-founder of the University of Maryland Center for Community Engagement, Environmental Justice and Health, talked with on-the-record host Sheila Cast about the need to work from the bottom up to equitably and efficiently fight climate change. We try to train residents to be scientists. Anybody could be a scientist and help collect that data so they can translate that data to action. So we call it empowerment science using science to empower people, and also liberation science, helping communities that are impacted by environmental injustices to liberate them from sacrifice zones, to liberate them from pollution, and really make sure that they're fully engaged in environmental decision-making so they can have better quality of life, sustainability, and, and public health outcomes. Wilson says there is an intentional difference between empowering communities of color when it comes to environmental equity and empowering them. The reason why we say empowerment with an I-N and not empowerment with an E-M, one of my community mentors told me, Shakobi, you can help give me power. You can help me collect, connect to the power that I already have. So the idea is how can we use science to help people build power, connect to the power they already have, to actualize that power, to speak with their own voice. And so the idea is we all have power, but to activate that power is important and making sure that science that we do is more action-oriented, is more applied, is more solution-focused, and that's a way for folks to be empowered, right? To build a capacity to use that science for action. You and, and several of your colleagues were involved in conceptualizing the Biden administration's Justice 40 initiative. What is that? So the Justice 40 initiative is part of President Biden's Executive Order 14008. So as we move from a dirty energy economy to a clean energy economy, 40% of the, the benefits of that transition should go to what we call disadvantaged communities. So what it's saying is for the communities that have been overburdened by legacy fossil fuel infrastructure, whether it be fracking sites, well pads, uh, extraction of oil and gas, whether it be the refineries that refine fossil fuels or the highways and byways that go through communities of color or the power plants that are disproportionately found in communities of color or the waste products, that those communities benefit from this transition. The, the, the frontline communities and the fence line communities, those communities that are nearby these facilities, nearby the factories, near the incinerators, near the power plants, that they should receive 40% of the benefits from this transition. So the economic benefits, the social benefits, the environmental benefits, and the health benefits. Professor Wilson says he believes Justice 40 has moved out of the idea phase and into an actionable one. I believe it's happening. If you look at some of the work of the US EPA, I'm uh, ex officio co-chair of the National Environmental Justice Advisory Council. That's a federal advisory board that advises the EPA on environmental justice issues. We've been providing feedback and guidance, you know, uh, recommendations to EPA and how to implement Justice 40. So you see the implementation happening as it relates to looking at air quality issues, 
brownfield sites, those may be sites like say you have an old gas station that gets renovated and now they have a, a new use for it or an old factory that now is an apartment complex or Superfund sites. These may be sites that have a lot of contamination and they go through a, a process of being cleaned up and, and other efforts to provide access to sewer and water infrastructure. Many um, urban communities and also rural communities do not have access to good water infrastructure. We all have a right to clean water. And so a big part of the Justice for the Initiative from the EPA side is to provide access to water infrastructure. So I believe there's progress being made on the implementation. You look at other members of the federal family like the Department of Energy, they're doing work to implement their part of the Justice 40. Uh, housing is also doing its work. Department of Transportation is looking at equity issues uh, around funding in Justice 40. And you also have agencies like Health and Human Services. They now have a new Office of Environmental Justice, which provides some guidance in how they implement that Justice 40 initiative. So I think there, I do believe there's some progress been made to implement Justice 40. You can hear Sheila Casts on the record interview with Professor Shakobi Wilson and a South Baltimore environmental justice activist in its entirety by going to WIPR.org. The Daily Dose is brought to you by WIPR, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Many thanks to my news team colleagues, Rachel Bay, Shekinah Collier, Bethany Raja, John Lee, Joel McCord, and Kristen Mossbrugger. Our general manager is LaFontaine Oliver. The executive editor of The Daily Dose is Danielle Irby. If you have a scoop or suggestion for this podcast, my social media hangout is Twitter at That's Pam Jones. So remember to be courageous and stay curious. I'm Pam Jones. Thanks for listening.